hello, and welcome back to episode seven of Juror Number One. So, last week was another crazy one. All of these stories are crazy, and guess what? This week is even the craziest one yet. That's why I'm packing this into one episode this week, and it is insane. The trial is pretty cut and dry, but what happens after is what is so nuts. So, let's dig into this one, shall we? This is episode number seven, A Murder in Ohio. So this story starts out June 7th of 1998. A 58-year-old woman, Judy, was uh, watching her granddaughter for the night, and she laid down on the couch like any normal night. Well, she fell asleep on the couch, and she was awakened by an intruder. This intruder attacked her while she was on the couch. He stabbed her, he beat her, terribly beat her, raped her, and then strangled her to death. Well, Judy's granddaughter, Brooke, was sleeping back in her room. When she heard all this commotion, she came out and saw what was happening and then ran back to her grandmother's room for safety and hid under the covers thinking it was some sort of nightmare. She had no idea what was going to happen next. The intruder had saw Brooke, and he ran back to that room where he beat Brooke, the six-year-old little girl. He beat her, and he raped her, and then he strangled her until she was unconscious. And then he left. Thinking that both of these people were dead, he left. Well, poor little Brooke. She was not dead, though. She woke several hours later, and she saw that her grandmother was dead, so she ran to the neighbor's house, banging on the neighbor's door, saying, you got to help me. My grandmother's dead. I've been attacked. A little six-year-old girl. Well, the neighbor, Tanya, she sees Brooke on her porch and hears her cries. And what does she do? Remember this. She tells young little Brooke, who's clearly visibly beaten. Hold on, I'm cooking my kids breakfast. Please wait on the porch. It shouldn't be more than 30 minutes. What? She tells this little girl who's traumatized, hold on, I'm cooking breakfast for my kids? Tanya, that's what you're going to tell her? So, this poor little girl has to sit on the porch and wait. Like She's telling this woman that her grandma's dead, been murdered. She doesn't even call the police. She finishes cooking breakfast for her kids and puts Brooke in her car and drives her to her mother's house. Not a hospital, not a police station, to her mother's house. And on the way there, Tanya asks little Brooke, and she says, who did this crime? 
And little Brooke, all she could say was, he kind of looked like my Uncle uh, Clarence. She said, the man looked like your Uncle Clarence? And she said, yeah. So Tanya goes to drop little Brooke off at her mom's house and says, hey, um, your mother's been murdered and your daughter's been beaten. And it was, Brooke tells us that Uncle Clarence did this. Obviously, the mother's shook by this news, and she calls the police. The only information she really has to give the police is that her mother is dead, and that Uncle Clarence is the one who did this. So, another small thing was, is that Tanya said uh, to Brooke's mom, yeah, it was Uncle Clarence, Clarence Elkins, he's the one that was the attacker. Strange. Remember that. Remember that. So, the police go to question Clarence, of course. Well, Clarence says, there's no way I could have did this. I was out drinking till 2.40 in the morning. And then I went home and my wife can corroborate all of this. Plus, I live an hour away. Strange, right? But they took Brooke into an interrogation room and asked her, who did you see commit these crimes against you and your grandmother? And she says, Uncle Clarence did this. And they ask her again, are you sure who did these crimes? And she said, yes, it was Uncle Clarence. Well, that was all they needed to charge him. So Clarence Elkins was charged with the murder, rape, and beating of Judy Johnson and also the rape and beating of Little Brooke. And they were off to trial. So that's why this is one episode. This trial is very brief with not a ton of it, evidence to it. But you're going to be very surprised. Hang on for a second. So... At the trial, the prosecutors said that the reason that Clarence did this is his mother-in-law was always like in his business with his wife. Him and his wife had a up-and-down marriage, like a lot of people do. But according to the prosecutor, his mother-in-law wanted them to get divorced, and he hated that, so he went there and he killed her. That's pretty thin, you would think. But then they had Brooke on the stand. And Brooke again says that it was Uncle Clarence that did it. And that was the main uh, prosecution points. But when it came to Clarence's defense, he had an almost airtight alibi. He was at the bar and didn't get home until about 2.40 in the morning. His wife corroborated it because one of their kids was sick and she was up all night with the kid. Clarence's neighbors saw him coming home and other friends corroborated that he was at the bar with them until 2.30. It's a short 10-minute drive home. And Clarence lives an hour away from where this crime happened at. So how could he possibly possibly have done this? So, 
that's really all the jury had. What would you decide? I would say that, I mean, obviously it's an eyewitness, but she's six years old. You know, I don't know. I would have a hard time convicting this man. Would you? Well, the verdict was guilty. Guilty on all charges for Clarence, and he was sentenced to prison. Crazy, right? Seems like little evidence to send somebody away, but this is where this case really, really turns crazy. So, his wife from the beginning, she knew he couldn't have done it because she was his alibi. She said that I'm going to hire my own investigator because these cops basically zeroed in on one guy and that was it. They didn't do any investigation outside of this guy. And another part of this appeal was a little bit of changing in the main evidence. You see, after a little bit of time went by and Brooke got a little bit older, she started telling her family that Uncle Clarence didn't do this crime. What? Yeah, she says it couldn't have been Uncle Clarence. The person that hurt me and Grandma had brown eyes, and Uncle Clarence has blue eyes. And they're like, well, why did you say this? And that poor, traumatized, sweet little girl said that she was scared to change her story. You see... What happened was, is when she went to the neighbor Tanya's that morning, and when Tanya asked her who did this, she said it was a guy who kind of looked like Uncle Clarence. And Tanya said, well, it was your Uncle Clarence. And she's like, no, I said he looked like Uncle Clarence. And she said, no, it was your Uncle Clarence. So whenever Brooke was dropped off, it was Tanya who told Brooke's mother, you're Uncle Clarence did this. Clarence is the one that did this. So this was information coming from Tanya, not even from Brooke. So whenever Brooke is being questioned, she is again telling the district attorney and the lead investigator, she's telling them both, it looked like Uncle Clarence. And they both, according to Brooke, allegedly says that they forced her to say that it was indeed Uncle Clarence, and she was scared to say anything else. Not only did this poor young girl go through the most horrific night, she's now being intimidated by these people to send her uncle to jail. That is unbelievable. So, she says that she will go on camera and recant everything. Say that I said it, it looked like Uncle Clarence. It wasn't, it wasn't Uncle Clarence. I will, I will tell everybody the exact truth of what happened. So, Clarence's attorneys interview her and she, and she says all of this. She says that how she was scared to change her story. How she was forced into doing this. So, what happens next? That appeal was denied. 
It was denied because the judge believed that the child had been coaxed by relatives into doing this to get their uncle out of jail. Oh, gosh, imagine being Clarence sitting in that cell. And then that you hear this, it takes so long to even get an appeal seen and go through. And this is what you get in return is that, uh, I don't believe it. I believed you the first time, which I'm sure happens a lot. So now they move on. They want to get into the DNA that it was found at the scene. But they had to pay for the testing. Yeah, this is crazy. This is this story is crazy. They know that he didn't do it, and his DNA is going to hopefully exclude him. But they have the they have to pay for it out of their own pocket, which is very expensive. But they knew that he was innocent, so they asked the court, and the court said that she could have Melinda, the wife of Clarence, could have access to the DNA from the scene. So, but like she said, she has to pay for it. So she raised $40,000. What a woman. Unbelievable. And then she got involved with the Innocence Project, and they found a lab in Texas to test two samples for twenty-five grand, which was half of what it usually cost. And guess what the DNA found out? The DNA results excluded Clarence from the crime. So Clarence has to be out of his mind happy. He's, he's basically, he's excluded from being the person who committed these crimes, so he's going to walk out of jail. Wrong again. You see, this appeal, even though this blows my mind, even though this DNA evidence proves without a doubt that he didn't commit these crimes, the appeal was denied. <laughs> yeah, right? This appeal was denied because, and this is the most bullshit back, uh, unbelievable reasoning for this. The appeal was denied because the court ruled that because a jury convicted him without DNA evidence, that they would have convicted him anyway, even if the DNA didn't match. How stupid does that sound? I couldn't imagine what Clarence is thinking right now. You get these amazing results. Your wife has been out here working your tail off, raising money, doing everything to get you out of jail. Finally, they raise enough money, $40,000, to finally get the DNA tested. And they finally get there. And the DNA results come back with exactly what they thought they would, excluding him. And still, they denied him. And he's still in jail. Unbelievable. So, we move on. Because this is where it gets even more interesting. So you remember the neighbor, Tanya, the one who told poor little Brooke to wait on the porch while she finished uh, cooking breakfast? So 
the private investigator that they'd hired looked into Tanya a little bit since she was the neighbor. Well, there was a little thing that uh, was kind of strange about Tanya. See, her boyfriend had just moved in with her two days before this murder. And he was also a uh, convicted sex offender. <laughs> Tanya can pick him, can't she? Well, this convicted sex offender wasn't even questioned by the police that lived next door because they zeroed in on Uncle Clarence. So now they want to get some of this man's DNA just to compare it with the sample they have. Well, guess what? This is what makes this story even more crazy. They found out his name was Earl. And when they went to try to find him to get his DNA, they found out that he was actually in prison again. Weird, right? So this is where it takes an even more crazy and awesome turn. Yes, awesome. They found out that Earl was actually in the same prison as Clarence. Crazy, right? And here's where it gets awesome. They couldn't get his DNA when he was in prison, so they had to get creative. So, Clarence befriended Earl, and one day when they were smoking, he snuck and grabbed Earl's cigarette butt, took it back to his cell, wrote a letter to his wife, and mailed that cigarette butt to her. And... His wonderful wife, Melinda, takes that cigarette butt and gets it checked against the DNA from the crime. And that was a match. How amazing is this story that this husband and wife, along with I'm sure a ton of people that helped them out, they took this all into their own hands and just to get her husband's name cleared, they paid for their own DNA. They did their own investigation. They smuggled out a cigarette butt to use that as DNA to get her husband's name cleared. And finally, in December of uh, 2005, he walked out of prison. Clarence was a free man. But he'd spent six and a half years in jail. And if it wasn't for his wife, he'd probably still be there. If we relied only on the justice system in this case, he'd still probably be in jail. Incredible story. How I mean, it just blew my mind that how they took this all into their own hands and, and solved their own case. And then Earl is also in jail, and he was he pled guilty to uh, killing and raping both uh, Judy and also raping. Uh, and beating young Brooke. So he's exactly where he needs to be. Well, that was a happy Easter story for y'all. Anyway, thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this special episode. Um, I hope you had a great weekend with your family. And I, I hope more than anything that you have a wonderful week and do me a giant favor and have a great day. We'll see you next week.